Hello, good people, and welcome to the Monster <laughs> Baby Podcast. This is a curious romp through the worlds of mindfulness and improvisation, co-hosted by, by Ted DeMaison. Ted DeMaison. And Lisa Rowland. Lisa Rowland. We'll let you choose which one is which. And uh, this one is a special episode. Well, I mean, we've yeah. got a pair of episodes, so we're going to give you this one. Hopefully, you'll be psyched to continue because we're having a conversation with two fine gentlemen, Matt yeah. Abrahams and Adam Tobin. Yeah, so it's not just us you're going to be hearing from this time. And Matt and Adam are an awesome pair. They most recently. Ted is taking a class from them at Stanford Continuing Studies called Improvisationally Speaking. So it's about combining the art forms of improvisation with public speaking and communication, not just public speaking, but speaking, speaking and communication, making sure your message is getting heard. I have worked with them previously doing medical, doing improv, improv and communication workshops for healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. And they both are Stanford folks who are lecturers in both, it, yeah. yeah. Do you want to? Yeah, I'll, I'll just mention that, that Matt's, Matt is a lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and he's got a book called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out and he hosts a podcast called Think Fast, Talk Smart. And then Adam is a uh, teaches screenwriting at Stanford as well as the Stanford Continuing Studies stuff. And Adam is also an, uh, an improviser. Right. So Adam has improv in his background, did took improv from Patricia long ago and and sort of really incorporates the improv philosophy is still involved in, and incorporates the improv philosophy into his work. Yeah. So that's that's the, those are the bios. Yeah, so we thought, hey, let's get these guys together, have a good chat because we're all teaching public speaking and communication in some fashion while teaching improvisation. And as you'll hear, they're also getting into a lot of stuff that's mindfulness related. So anyway, this is our conversation with them again in two parts. Hope you'll stick around for both of them. But uh, yeah. we had good fun. We imagine you might as well. Let part one commence. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Yeah, so welcome to both of you, and thanks for joining us. And and yeah. we're excited about this because we know how cool you are, and the cool stuff you do in the world, and the perspective you have, and how cool your voices are. So you're kind of upping the cool factor on the Monster Baby podcast. We're very yeah. grateful for that. Cool points. And thanks very much. Uh, I just sent you the Venmo for that. <laughs> yeah. In the Venmo. Yeah. Okay, we'll have yeah. to uh, we'll have to track that properly uh, for the accounting purposes, but. Uh, you know, we all we all teach improvisation in different formats, and we all teach speaking in different formats. And that's how I met you, Matt, was because the two of you are teaching this class, improvisationally speaking, through Stanford Continuing Studies, and I've been taking that class this this term. But Lisa and I know Adam through the Stanford Improvisers, and so and I and I have worked with both Matt and Adam teaching communication and improv to medical practitioners, to like healthcare right. providers. So that's how the three of us. I mean, Adam and I knew each other from Simpy Stanford Improviser stuff, but the three of us had worked together in that context. So it's kind of a cool all coming together after having come at one another in different angles. Got some Venn diagrams joining here. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's cool. We've been, we've all been doing this stuff for so long and it's, or it's like roads converging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's totally. inevitable. We were meant to meet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, our themes on the podcast are mindfulness and improvisation. And so, you know, yeah, we want to get to those, but it's also just like getting to chill out and, and hear what's up. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, that's the deal. And I've got some questions as is my want. I don't know if Lisa has any already. <laughs> no, but I think Ted has more questions prepared than I do. Uh, but I will say, I, I suppose we probably will have introduced Matt and Adam in the intro. Is that right? It's better at the outro, actually. It's better to be like, oh, here's who that was. We're going we're right. to outroduce them. Like, yes. do we need to do outreach? Yeah. It's like actually, do me a favor. Will you confuse the two of us, like most of our students do, just so? Right. Yeah. Adam. That was Adam. No, that was Matt. Who the hell talked? I don't know. Yes. yes. It's um, always Matt and Adam, even though I think I'm first alphabetically. <laughs> Although 
Abraham's is ahead of Tobin. So, mm. so could go either That's way. That's true. There. It is always Matt and Adam. It should be Adam and Matt. I don't know. All right. I, I we just made a change. After 10 years, Adam. we're changing. I don't think I could do it. I have a reason. I think it's easier to say Matt and Adam. And we, I, I, I think about this with ours as well. Is it Ted and Lisa or Lisa and Ted? It's Ted, I think it's Ted, Ted and Lisa. Just, yeah. So um, Rob Robinson, who was an RA, RF at Stanford, a linguist, he was a Germanic linguist. He used to do this whole thing about, it, it has to do with the, the hard and soft syllables. So yeah. people typically do their names. So it's a pattern. Mm. And I don't remember the pattern, but I think we're all fitting that pattern. Yeah, cool. That's, yeah. that's great. Cool. Well, I'd like the idea of doing a little introduction. So, and I'd love for you guys to introduce yourselves so we get to hear it in your voice. Who the heck are you? <laughs> uh, when I know, I'll let you know. Mm. <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Um, Depends who I'm channeling at the moment. Mm. I was I was born the eleventh of twelve children, and, uh, <laughs> and never mind. Uh, <laughs> hi, I'm Adam Tobin. Oh, uh, hey. um, yes, so I teach improv speaking with Matt. We we teach this class together, improvisationally speaking, for the Stanford Continuing Studies. I also teach Stanford undergrads. Uh, I am a senior lecturer in the art department teaching screenwriting in the film and media studies program. So I went to Stanford undergrad, I went to USC for film school, and I've worked in film and TV. And now I, my day job is I teach screenwriting and TV writing. And do you also screenwrite yourself? I do. Most recently, I wrote a play, I wrote a children's musical based on Chelsea Clinton's picture book, She Persisted. Mm -hmm. And we made that into a musical that's an hour long and it played in San Francisco and it just played in New York. Um, and we got all sorts of good reviews and good vibes around it. It's really a lovely thing. Um, in the past I have written, uh, I created a television series comedy for one of Nickelodeon's teen channels. I created a reality show. Um, that Drake was a guest star on before he was Drake. Wow. I was impressed by that. I am impressed by that. I'm curious about it. And uh, so I created a rally show, a TV show. I worked in game shows. I worked for the NBA. Um, I was a contestant on a game show. Adam, so much I didn't know about you. you this is you, such a fun list of things. What, what, what game show were you on? I didn't uh, know that. Not a game show, a reality show. Oh, was, well, that I knew about. Yes, that, well, this is impressive, too. What reality show was it? I was on Project Greenlight, which is the reality show on HBO that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had. It was a contest. It was a filmmaking contest. And if you got to the if you won, they made your movie. And the first year they had a writer director that didn't work out so well. So the second year they had a writer's contest and a director's contest. And I got uh -huh. to the finalist of the writer's contest. They flew me out to Sundance and I pitched to Matt and Ben on HBO. Wow. Um, president of Miramax films was there. Um, and I did not win. And uh, they were fools, I tell you, mm -hmm. fools. <laughs> Biggest but, mistake those two ever made. But there's lots of there's lots of fun upshots from that, including there's actually somebody who worked on the crew of that who years later worked on the crew of my of the reality show that I created. So I remember at the time being really nice to the crew because they decide how you're going to be portrayed ultimately. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we crossed paths again, so that was that was fun. I I I made quite a few friends from that uh, experience. That's cool. cool. Yeah, I love I love the range and diversity, like the way you sort of collect all these experiences and bring them into what you then have to offer your students now. And and so that's cool. We could talk about that some more later. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe uh, Matt can introduce himself, and then we can we can get back to that, but yeah. Well, I, my life is nowhere near as interesting as Adam. Um, I am, uh, I'm Matt Abrahams, uh, like Adam, went to Stanford undergrad, went to UC Davis uh, for grad school in communication. Uh, after 
grad school, needed to pay off some student debt. So I went into high tech and had a, a bit of a career there, mostly in learning and development. Mm. And then uh, when my wife and I started our family, decided not to have that lifestyle, crazy high tech traveling all over the place and went back to my passion, which is teaching. And so I taught at a high school for two years where I taught English and speech graduated to a community college all along the way, teaching at Stanford Continuing Studies. And then for the last 10 years, I've been a lecturer at Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where I teach strategic communication and sometimes a class on effective virtual communication. Wow. And Adam and I crossed paths through a mutual friend and through that uh, was born Improvisationally Speaking, which is also on its decade anniversary. And we, we, Enjoy it very much and have a lot of fun teaching the class. Congratulations. You, it's happy anniversary. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I, what's, the, what's the element for 10 years of teaching something? That's a great... <laughs> right. Pencil lead. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But... Boron. Is that Boron. <laughs> Okay. It's, a, it's an eraser. It's a <laughs> yes. A whiteboard with three more colors to it. Uh, well, how did you how did you get into speaking in the first place? Yeah, how did I get into yeah. speaking in the first place? So, um, if the story is um, in, I, I can I can tell you almost the date. I was a freshman in high school. We had to on the first week of class, each of us had to stand up and share what we had done that summer. And because my last name is Abrahams, I always sat in the front corner of the room and I had to go first. So I stood up and told some story about my summer and my English teacher, Mr. Meredith, at the end of class pulled me over and said, hey, Matt, you're pretty good at this speaking thing. Those are his words. Hmm. He said, there's an upcoming speech tournament in a weekend or two and I need you to go compete. So as a 14 year old freshman, I just did what I was told. I prepared a speech it was on karate uh, something I was and still am passionate about. Huh. And I show up on a Saturday morning very early, you know, the, the prototypical 14-year-old in pants that are too short, floods, you know, a tie that my dad had to tie the night before. I enter into this room where there are a whole bunch of my friends, the parents of my friends, because they're the ones who got drafted into judging this competition, and the girl that I liked. Oh, boy. And so I, so I start this karate uh, speech, very, very nervous, so nervous that I forgot to put on my karate pants. And if you know, karate pants have a little extra room in the groin area. And I started with a karate kick and oh, I no. ripped my pants no. from, from belt loop to zipper in the first 10 seconds of a 10 minute speech. And at that moment, I was experiencing the impact anxiety can have on somebody in their communication. And from that moment on, I have dedicated my life to helping people feel more comfortable and confident speaking. It's what, it's what really guided me through a lot of what I did. So that Saturday wow. morning at 7.30 a.m. Uh, is how I got into speaking, Ted. Wow. And so that, yeah. that's why the first day of class, you told us all to wear karate pants. I get it. That's exactly right. And, and I teach in them all the time. <laughs> They're quite stylish. Well, you never know. I mean, you just never know. You okay. never know. Matt, yes. like, was that, because I've heard that story before in a shorter form, was that like traumatized? At what point did you kind of segue from that? How, how do you go from that to, to professionally speak, you know, professionally teaching speakers? Yeah, because I could see that that would drive you in the opposite direction. It's like, forget this. I'm never going back up there again. Like that sounds traumatizing. So, so it, it, it really all boils down to pity. The judges felt so badly for me that they actually let, I, I won. I won nice. the, the tournament. And all of a sudden, I got some street cred. Uh, being a geeky kid, I got some street cred. And so um, I, I continued doing competition and actually ended up getting pretty good at the craft, uh, at least at the high school level, and yeah. really enjoyed it. And, and that's what led me to, to get more interested in it. Mm. But, Did you uh, never heard that you won? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but it, it wasn't because I was better than anybody. It was literally because I had a gaping crevasse of a hole in my pants and the parents were mortified and said, the fact that he finished the speech with a ripped, with ripped pair of pants, he's the winner. Wow. So, 
my I don't know. My, maybe you were good at that speaking thing. Yeah, could it, I was could good have at been. that. Right. Well, I was good at standing with my butt hanging out. In front of yeah, that's people, it. I guess. What's the? I mean, really, that's what we're all doing, <laughs> right? If we really get down to it, that's what we got to do. It's it's funny because my public speaking career, I'm putting in air quotes here, was similarly traumatic. It was when I had gone to sixth grade, and Lisa, I don't know if you've heard this story, but I switched from a public school to a private school. And it was like, finally, I was going to be with, you know, people that I could just sort of unleash and learn as much as I wanted to learn. But I was so socially out of my element because all the kids were wealthy and we were not. But the teacher was great. And his name was Mr. Harris. And he let me sit right next to his desk. So I was like, had this little protection. But we had an assignment where we had to, I forget what we had to speak about, but we had to give a speech. And I went up, like just got up from my desk and went and stood behind his desk and looked out and just started crying. I like oh. was bawling. I'm 11 years old. <laughs> I oh. barely know anybody. I just was crying and crying and crying. And he said, Teddy, do you want to sit down? I was like, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> so I just walked three feet back to my desk and sat down and cried. Auspicious, an auspicious, auspicious beginning. beginning. Well, and then after everybody else had gone, he turned to me and he said, Teddy, do you want to try again? And I said, yeah. And I got up and I gave my speech. And, and then it was fine. You know, it was all, all, everything was fine. And a couple, no, I guess two years later, we had a speech coach come in in eighth grade. I took a, a speech class and my buddy and I loved it. And it just sort of became this thing. And then I started winning awards in high school. And it was like one of the things I loved to do the most. But it had that first moment of crap, I can't do this. And I'll never be good at this. For me, it was the, <laughs> for you, you said pity. I, I would think of Mr. Harris's generosity that kind of coming back to me and giving me the chance again, you know. But it, it speaks to me, I don't know, so many people are afraid of speaking up performance wise, but also like in a moment that's challenging. And so, you know, that's kind of what we're all helping people with in different times in our teaching. And uh, how do you stand up in front of a room and make a point and make yourself known and express that vulnerability or whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. so. That's really what drives what I do. It's I, I, I really want people to feel comfortable enough to share their ideas, their inputs, their insights, and, and anxiety gets in the way. And, and, and what the work we all do hopefully helps people feel more comfortable so that they can share their thoughts. And, and I hope that the world is a better place for hearing everybody's ideas and insights. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Lisa, do you have a story from your first not a traumatic one. I mean, I like, I, I also don't, I, I never did speech and debate or like public speaking was not the thing, but performing was the thing. And I, you know, I think that I, I remember coming, coming home, my mom tells the story of me coming home in third grade and being like, mom, you're doing a talent show at school and I'm going to enter and I'm going to do a poem by, by Shel Silverstein by myself. And I've got to figure it out. Right. And she was like, okay, well, got it go go for it and i so like it was never i was never that was never a painful thing mm. like being up in front of people was never a painful thing you are the bird that steps out of the egg and flies off the ledge i, I don't know i mean but it, but it wasn't <laughs> right into like a I, glass pane yeah. <laughs> speaking, speaking wise speaking you were yeah uh, so i don't have a i don't have a similar story of like where it all began like i don't yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I have the same exact story as Lisa. No, I have the same uh, perspective as Lisa. I, I just always wanted to perform. I always loved performing. I think I had two older brothers who, when I was little, they were both acting and they were both in the ballet, in the Washington Ballet Company. I watched them for years because the, they need like little kids at the party and the Nutcracker. And, and for boys, they would give you the classes for free. Um, so for years, my brothers are four and six years older. I would watch them perform in the Nutcracker, really want to be in that, perform in shows, really want to be in that. And I 
you know, I was just always happy to perform. I mean, my, I, I have a memory of in middle school, uh, sorry, in elementary school, I performed in the school, I don't know, play or whatever it was. It was, I guess, a talent show. <laughs> For whatever reason, I had written out this whole routine of that was like through the different decades and it was like songs from different decades and in between there were like running jokes like um i had a briefcase and it was like awesome. where are you going i'm i had a briefcase and a tennis racket and and somebody said where are you going and i said i'm taking my case to court court and I'll go off and then oh, and then I would perform a song and then later I would come back through with a briefcase and a ladder. Where are you going? I'm taking my case to a higher court. Okay. <laughs> and the song, the song was, there's a song called I'm a lonely little petunia in an onion patch. Oh my God. That's and, all real? I, and all I do is cry all day. Oh yeah, sure. I'm a lonely little petunia in an onion patch. An onion patch. An onion patch. I'm a lonely little petunia in an onion patch. And all I do is cry all day. Wow. Yeah. So I did that <laughs> my middle school without any, I don't think somebody asked me to. I don't know why. Wow. I did all that. And like afterwards, somebody was like, oh, that's so funny. You were so funny. And I and part of me was like just mortified that they thought I was funny doing that song. I'm a professional. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were I'm, taking it very seriously. Yeah. I, I think that was an elementary school show. I think it was like third grade or something. That is amazing. Wow. So, yeah, for me, it was I was just always performing and I, I love it. And. When we're in class, it's more like, it's not that I'm trying to help them. <laughs> I don't care about them. No, it, <laughs> it's more we like- We just say it's all about them, right? <laughs> it's that I get joy from it. And I wanna like mm. do it with other people and share that joy with other people mm -hmm. in a way that like, I don't know, a professional actor, there's, there's so much else going on with that. Like in, in a classroom, it really is people who have come to be, to grow a little bit and you yeah. get to share with them. Mm. Mm. I didn't know you could sing so well, Adam. We're gonna have to add that into the class. Oh yeah. Well, I loved about that song choice is that the content allows your voice to break and you can be like, I was just crying. No, I mean the whole, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's like, I, that wasn't my voice breaking. I was being authentic to the material. Yeah. The whole point of the song is for your voice to break. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like a joke song that way. Good, yeah. good cover. Good cover. Um, I love that song. <laughs> well, I now I've only just heard it and now I love it. And I can't wait to learn more about it. And just picture me. I don't know what kind of Petunia costume I was wearing. <laughs> Adam Tobin, the loneliest little petunia. Yeah, <laughs> yes. so good. Did you have a third joke? We need with... to come up with nicknames for ourselves, and you're going to be Petunia, yeah. Adam. Oh, <laughs> yes. Nice, yeah. nice. So good. I, I do. I, I was uh, realizing something. I was listening to some of your podcast, Matt, and mm -hmm. remember the the episode that Adam was on. Adam and Dan Klein were on your yes. podcast about improvisationally speaking and the and the, the the gift of being present and and i've noticed that a, a theme that is coming back again and again when we're talking about speaking and facing anxiety around communicating is the mantra that it's not about you that you that, that the reason that we're so locked up is because we're hyper focused on what we're doing and scrutinizing what am I doing? What is my body doing? What is my voice doing? Am I looking okay? Am I going to remember it? Da, da, da. And as soon as you sort of turn the lens back out to ev everybody else and notice them and acknowledge them and think about the fact that your act of communication is providing a service and you, you get to give them this, then it, it totally changes. It, it totally changes the game. Um, yeah. And I know that that's one, right. One of the lessons of improvisation is make your partner look good. Like it's not about you. It's a, 
It's about your partner. And I just love that it's come up in a number of ways with a number of your different guests on your podcast. And I think yeah. that that's probably a major, like I think I would imagine that a lot of people studying communication are looking at like, what should I do? How should I behave? How should I show up? What are my best practices? And that this like hidden secret is, oh, it's not about you. It's not, it's not actually about right. what you're doing. It's about connecting to somebody else. We say so often that everybody starts their communication from the wrong place. They start by saying, what is it that I want to say? And in fact, it should be, what does my audience need to hear? And that's a very different perspective. And that puts you in that audience focus. And one of the things that I, I treasure about working with Adam is he's really helped me understand just how much stuff is going on in our head that we judge and evaluate and, and that just gets in the way of being in service of the audience. So mm -hmm. I think you're right, Lisa. I think this is a critical component of helping people feel more comfortable and by the way, communicating in a more effective way when you focus on the, the audience and what they need and why it's relevant to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I love that improv not only has built into its maxims this idea of making the other look good, but it's all about being present oriented, listening and helping uh, what what needs to be done in the moment. And, and yeah. that is all other focused, which is really helpful for people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love cool. the way that the two of you work together. And as I've been taking your class, I've sort of experienced this as a, a well-rounded mindfulness offering in that, Matt, you've talked with us a lot about the physical components of being aware of what's going on mm -hmm. with your body, with your breath. Are you are your hands sweaty and can you cool yourself down and what's your heart rate right. doing and how are you standing? And Adam has helped us think about these voices that we get inside our head of the sort of self judgments and what are the stories we tell about, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. And the way, all the ways that improvisation helps us loosen that stuff up. And so it's like, Oh yeah, we're being present with our physicality and we're being present with our minds becoming aware of all that. And then, making a choice, having the freedom to say, do I want that or do I want to do something else? And then it's got this element of the like compassion that we're talking about, connecting with other people or serving other people. And so it's been really cool. You you haven't been saying those things explicitly. And yet, partly because of the lens I'm wearing, I'm like seeing them pop up all the time and shows up. Yeah, I think um, that's really interesting. I um, the the thing that Lisa mentioned really was the eye opener for me that I, I I came from this performing and like achieving point of view that I think a lot of us did Stanford people and whatever but um, but getting that in college of it's not about you it's about them like it's just so freeing um, mm -hmm. and and the later stage that comes is that you trust yourself enough that whatever comes out in service of the other people will be okay, will be fine, will be good enough, might even mm -hmm. be wonderful. Um, but rather than spending all of your energy trapped in your own brain, you know, trying to trying to be exactly right, to like free yourself and connect with other people, it, it's so fun. And I would say that's the part that I'm an evangelist about in our classes is, is that getting out of your head mm -hmm. which maybe speaks yeah speaks to the anxiety part that you know you guys talked about in your in your first uh, speaking experiences mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's um you know i so i also teach screenwriting and we had this guru in our film school he's this great czech filmmaker um he's like a million years old and was like <laughs> you know. and he there was one time where he was hiring teachers and he asked every teacher the same question. And I was on, I was on the panel with him. And the question was, what's the hardest thing for you to teach? Hmm. And so they all answered different things. And, and during the break, I said, okay, Frank, what's the hardest thing to teach? And for him, it was theme, which is a very complicated thing in, in screenwriting, which is a whole nother subject. But years later, I asked one of his students who had also been my teacher, what the hardest thing to teach was. And he said to teach students to get out of their own way, mm -hmm. especially for writers. And so that resonated too. Like part of what we're doing is, is like, if you put your attention on them and what they need and the communication that needs to happen, you get out of your own way. 
it's there's a bit of a paradox there as well. So the work I've done with Patsy Rodenberg, who teaches Second Circle Presence, and she's a voice and acting coach. She uses Shakespearean poetry a lot to help people learn how to articulate well and how to stand and, and deliver, right? Super challenging, but one of the things that she says is so great about Shakespeare is that in order to do it, you have to get yourself out of the way. So it's like, strip away your assumptions, strip away your theatricality about Shakespeare and let the words speak through you and honor the text. And that when you do that, what happens is that you actually become more you. You become more visible by, letting, by getting your assumptions or your structures of yourself out of the way and embodying this living thing that's coming through. And I think of when we're doing improvisational speech or improv theater performance, that that same thing's happening. Like somehow it's not you, but it's even more you than you would have been able to get to before. It's sort of funny. I, so part of my specifically speaking world is working at speech skills, teaching nonverbal communication in effect. And there are best practices. I mean, a lot of it is, what is your body doing? What is your eye contact doing? Where is your, like, what is your, what level is your head at? Are you doing some weird thing where you're looking at the side of your face? What are your hands doing? So there is a, there's a way in which we're, we're working against this idea of like, it's not about you. It's like, it, you are a part of this, mm -hmm. right? So there's like mindset, it's not about you. And then there is recognize that there, mm, okay, I'm going to get there. This idea of we do things in order to get ourselves out of the way. And I feel like the thing that I'm, te that I'm teaching a lot of the times is your body is doing things that, that is working against who you really are. Mm -hmm. So, so you, have some, you have some habits that undermine your presence. And, and what you actually have to offer and bring to the table is, is greater than what is showing up because you have this habit of looking out the side of your face at people or whatever. So like we talk about how unnatural and inauthentic are different and how like when you change mm -hmm. your habits, it may feel unnatural, but actually you may look like a more authentic version of yourself to you. Like you look more like yourself to you using this straight posture than you did doing this, whatever other thing you were doing without knowing it. Yeah, I've learned a ton of this from Matt over the years. I, yeah. This is really what a lot of what he does. It's really, it's a, it's weird, right? Cause it's like, it's not about you, but what you do matters a lot. <laughs> well, I see it as, and Lisa, I've seen you do this amazing work with nonverbal presence when, when we've done the work on uh, medical improv together and just yeah. how you can get people to recognize what it is they're doing. But to me, those uh, nonverbal cues that you're talking about are really adding noise to the system that interfere with your message. So by becoming aware of what you're doing and as you know, my mantra is it's all about turning habits into choices, make the choice that will help you help your audience understand what you're saying with the least amount of friction, the least amount of noise. But to get there, you have to have just this general level of awareness. And, and some of the games and insights that you have provided, I think are fantastic to get people mm -hmm. to realize, oh my goodness, you know, when my shoulders slouch a little bit, that, that sends a very different message that interferes with me trying to convey something to a patient or a doctor, et cetera. So mm -hmm. that's my perspective on that. But it is ironic, right? That we're, we're saying you have to get in your head a little bit to pay attention to what you're doing yeah. so that you can get out of your way to do better at it. Yeah, and it's like, you gotta clear the hump. Like there's gonna be this initial thing where it's like, ah, this is so distracting. It's like, it's gonna be distracting for a while. Mm -hmm. Keep That's right. working on it so you can get to the other side because right. we, we, yeah. There's this other thing that we talk about where it's like, we don't trust people that we can tell are working really hard on their skills. You know right. what I mean? Like when we're talking mm -hmm. to people and we can tell that they're, they're like, I've learned what to do with my eye contact. <laughs> like it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel genuine. Yes. However, once that skill becomes a habit, right? Like mm -hmm. once it once that is a part of your comfort zone, then we're no longer watching you work on your skill. We're just watching you connect with me because your eye contact is allowing you to do it. You know. Right. So it's that. It's just that. Like. So you move I don't know. I might have the oldest children here. <laughs> um, so my my older son. <laughs> and at least I don't have any. 
Okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was trying to be diplomatic about it because I don't know you well enough, Ted, yeah, to know you. if you have kids or not. I bet so, good cats. Um, right. Okay. So, but your cats are not driving cars. So, my oh. older son just got his driver's license, and there was a lot of, of going out on the road and being very scared, both of us. <laughs> but it's exactly that: is is he's paying attention to things that we no longer pay attention to, and mm -hmm. it's interesting to watch that process. Mm. And it's very much the same thing we do when we teach people to pay attention to things that they haven't paid attention to before. And that learning curve is painful, sometimes scary. Uh, but once you get over that hump, as you mentioned, it, it becomes easier and habitual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it, it was, uh, I, I would try to reflect on that as I would, rather than reflecting on the fact that I might be dying in the next <laughs> moments because of his lack of braking or yeah. <laughs> excessive acceleration. Yeah. But it really drove the point home, excuse the point. I was going to say, so to speak, <laughs> I was yeah. right there with you. Well, it's funny you mentioned driving. That's the example I always use when I talk about, I forget whose model of learning it is, but the conscious competence model of yes. that we start unconscious incompetence. We don't know how to do something. We don't even know that we don't know. And then we learn that we don't know how to do it. And so now we're consciously incompetent. And that's super frustrating because we want to be able to do it. So then we learn and then we have to be consciously competent. And for me, the example of that step was like when I learned to drive a manual transmission. I was like, okay, wait a second, step on the brake, clutch, let the clutch, you know, here's the shift. And all those things had to be in a certain order. And it was so conscious. But then eventually learning over time becomes habit. And so now unconsciously competent. I don't have to think about it. But because I haven't driven a standard in so long, I think I was in, yeah, I rented a car in Europe a couple months ago and had a manual transmission again. It was like, what am I doing? And for a while on driving on the wrong side of the road, and it was like doubly confusing. So, I mean, I think also some of these habits come from they come from an emotional place anyway, which is I'm trying to protect myself. I'm making myself small or, or Matt talks about self-soothing, you know, people sway to adults sway to soothe themselves. And so grip their hands to do this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Right. And so not only is it unnatural to them, but it's not, it's not soothing them. Right. It's leaving them exposed. It's leaving them uncomfortable. Um, and so, so it, there is an emotional part of it too. Um, mm -hmm. They need to learn kind of physical best practices. And there's a reason that they haven't been doing those physical best practices. And it's that they're, they're less safe. They're more exposed. Mm -hmm. I, some, of the, some of the most emotional moments in, in communication workshops are coaching women to speak at optimal volume. Mm. Absolutely. And it's really interesting that the the times when tears come or when it when it's it, there's it's when it's yeah when it feels like there's an emotional component to it beyond just like ah this is hard or whatever yeah. is coaching women to speak at optimal volume and I, in those moments I'm just so aware of how vulnerable this feels and how much feels like it's at stake mm -hmm. and how much gender conditioning there is mm -hmm. uh, in our culture about not taking up too much space and not being pushy and not being aggressive and not wanting to be too much for anyone and how speaking at a volume that is just comfortable for everybody in the room feels so in such violation of the norms that they have learned to follow. And, and so when you talk about how there is this emotional component, it, there's such vulnerability because the way we show up is so, can feel so tied to identity mm -hmm. and, you know, that it can feel really threatening to leave those comfort zones that we've built in any number of ways. Mm. Yeah, uh, this reminds me of, um, so a few years back, we had a, a couple of women in our class who were from other countries. And, you know, in one case, I think she was a, she was a doctor from Russia, but she was so bottled up here. And I don't know what it was like for her in Russia, but there was another woman who was Indian and who, you know, accidentally in an improv game said something inappropriate, you know, and just burst out laughing. And it was like, this was like such a, a a safe space 
to like just be a person in the world um and it felt it felt profoundly powerful in a way that you know was just um articulated was was a shine a light was shined on it yeah mm. we we're like oh something deep just something uh, something deep was touched <laughs> like some deep thing or need or profound piece of experience was touched by this freedom by this you know permission or yeah. whatever it is yeah i was just going to say that one of the things i love so much about the work that uh, i've been fortunate enough to do with adam and and you lisa and, and now ted is the epiphanies that people have uh and they come in the smallest strangest ways and and adam and i have seen this multiple times uh, where we've had a student who was just very suspect you know, and, and just, and all of a sudden something happens and it could be something orchestrated that we orchestrated, or it could be something that they, that happened in an activity and you can see the light bulb go off and it all of a sudden it, it gives them access to a different way of thinking. And, and to me, that's the magic. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know that we can bottle it. It just, it's fascinating and fun to see. And, and, and I love having the epiphanies that I get from doing the work, even though it's, it, it's you know the same thing quarter after quarter, mm -hmm. totally. but uh, that that inner ignition is really cool. Those those, those moments, those those skeptics, you know, who are really fighting with it or really you know struggling with it, and then they turn the corner and they become like zealots over it. You know, they're really yeah. like this has changed everything. We're like we know. We know. <laughs> of that that moment of that of that light bulb going on, the eyes getting wider and. All of a sudden, I'm saying something and people are listening to me and I get that feedback from everybody else. They're kind of leaning in and, whoa, what is this power moving through? And and I also love, because Lisa, you started about that, with that vulnerability that some women feel when they start to get past that volume threshold. It's like, oftentimes that feeling of exhilaration comes and then there's a second wave behind it of like, oh crap, you know. For sure. Because when we are actually saying what's true for us, we're making a difference. That feels cool. But then we're also like, uh, yeah, as, as you, you've said, we're now more visible and you know, that's a little risky, but then it, it's kind of got this, oh yeah, but I'm all right. I've, I can, I can handle this. I've got my feet beneath me and we're good to go. My, my, I, my mom calls that experience when you've said something that is true, but was difficult to say, and then the, and then the next emotional experience, she calls that afterburn. She's like, oh yeah, then the afterburn comes. And the afterburn for, for her and for me is filled with like, I shouldn't have said that. I should call back and apologize. That was too much. I, are, are we okay? Do they hate me? Is it, was that, did I cross the line? I should, I should probably, I should, I know what I should do now. I should, right. It's like, it's so filled for me with self-doubt right. and like it's like a it's like an anemone when you poke an anemone and it and it um brings all its tentacles in yeah. that's what it feels like it's like oh god oh god what have i done and having a name for it really helps because now before i say a hard thing i expect the afterburn so i'm like i'm gonna say this hard thing and then i'm gonna do the afterburn thing where i doubt everything <laughs> i'm about to say right and i call my mom and i'm like i'm doing it i've got mm -hmm. afterburn and she's like oh yeah, I get it. Yeah. Tell me about it. Right. And we can normalize it and defang it a little bit because I don't believe it anymore. It's like I have a name and it's like, yep, I expected this to come. Uh, and it's an interesting experience. I love that. Can I call your mom? Yeah, <laughs> anytime. She's a very wise yeah. lady. The, the image that came to mind when you were saying that, Lisa, was of a little kid running out onto a porch and declaring something to the world and like to the birds and the squirrels and then finishing and being like, <laughs> running back yeah. into the living room. Oh yeah, totally. Like run and hide. Yeah. Get back yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. I think we all take really interesting advice from our parents. Uh, my favorite advice that my mother repeatedly says is, uh, tell me the time, don't build me the clock. And to me, that is that is so so prophetic and i think it's targeted to me because i tend to be a clock builder but in the work i do i use that quote so often because a lot of us want to go into every nit norky detail of everything and and people just need to know what time it is and if yeah. they want to know how the clock was built they'll ask, they'll you, ask. Don't, you don't have to tell them. So when I heard you, I mean, I, I love what your mother said, and, and that's true. I have felt that I feel that on a regular basis. 
but but I, I, I mm. it made me think of the advice my mother gave about telling time and building clocks. Tell me the time. Don't build me the clock. It's wonderful. Yeah. Adam, do you have wisdom from your parents? I I do. Well, I can think of two from my mom. Um, uh, <laughs> one of her favorite phrases. So my mom passed away 25 years ago, but one of her favorite phrases was, "That's what makes horse racing." Which apparently <laughs> used to be a phrase. Um, and, what is it? When do you say it? Well, well, I'll 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 give you an example. So the, the idea of that's what makes horse racing is that the second part is people bet on different horses. Um, so when somebody has an opinion different from yours, or two people uh. opinions, or different way of being in the world, she's like, "That's what makes horse racing," which is a way of saying like, "Just because isn't it great?" Somebody yeah. feels that, and I feel this doesn't mean. Like that, that has to be resolved or any of that. It's just, that's what makes horse racing. Mm -hmm. um, the other one that I think of from my mom is, um, you know, the like, I wouldn't get out of bed. I didn't want to get out of bed. And she would, you know, come and pour, she actually poured water on my brother when he didn't get out of bed one time. And like, there's some things, there's some things in life, you just do it. There's some things in life, you just, you just do it. It's not excuses. It's not complaining. It's not just do it. Um, and uh, and I have to tell myself that. I certainly tell my kids that. You know, it's just. Yeah. Oh, can I give one more? One more. <laughs> um, Only one more, though. That's it. My mom was a was a native New Yorker from Brooklyn, and we would go to New York uh, like once or twice a year. Um, and my mom always said, "This is the way you cross the street in New York." Step out into the street, and if they hit you, you sue. <laughs> and I was a terrified 10-year-old. Oh, man. No sense to me whatsoever. You're like, but then they've hit you. But then you're hit. But what? Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, but I taught it to my kids when we were in New York this past year, yeah. and uh, they now know that piece of wisdom, too. Does that show up in your life in other places, Adam? Do you, yeah, what is your metaphorical relationship to that advice, if there is oh, one? I mean, it, it just means you can't be afraid. You, you, you got to go. You can't do be it. afraid. You, you, uh, you make yourself known and you mm. want the consequences, right? Um, but, like, it's their problem if they hit you, not your problem. I mean... God, I could use that. I'm going to take your mom's advice. You take mine. It, that's so good. And it goes against, you know, the kind of personal responsibility advice that I also learned from my mom. But but there's something about I, I'm not a very spiritual person, but I have I have developed this idea that you have to tell the universe what you want. If you want to, get mm. it. you know, it's like you got to step out into the street. <laughs> and if you don't get what you want, you sue the universe. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, that's that's like <laughs> Greek drama or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> the court. Then you go to the temple uh, and the, you rail at the, the oracle. The chorus yeah. comes in and says, "He was hit by the car. He was hit by the car." <laughs> so, so Ted, we've all shared uh, insight from our parents. Do you have any insight that stuck with you? You know, I've been sort of as I've been listening, having one little part of my brain trying to flip through, I don't know that I've got any. <laughs> I mean, my parents are lovely people and I learned a ton from them, but in terms of like aphorisms or things, that, the only one I can think of is the, the one that my dad echoes his mother, my grandmother, which is something that I don't believe, uh, which is everything happens for a reason. Mm -hmm. And, and, so, but he doesn't say it himself. He'll say, well, you know what Thelma would have said? And I'm like, yeah, I do. I do know what she would have said. And I don't I, agree with it. I love that. I love that way around it. It's like, I want to evoke this piece of wisdom. I don't totally buy it, but it feels appropriate yeah. for right now. So yeah. I'm just going to quote somebody else. A little softener in there, a little yeah. mid-level softener. But That's great. yeah, they, they weren't big on aphorisms like that. And I mean, if they were to say one, what would my dad say? I don't, I don't know that you can make it up. <laughs> yeah, but like a sort of if I'm I not sure that's how this works. Take, An amalgam of everything he said. Yeah, right. Take their personalities and what would? Yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't. My maybe my mom's would be like, 
do what you love. Or no, she'd say, do what lights you up. Oh, that would be her pretty. words, right? Because she's always, she's always been fascinated by how much my, my mannerism changes, my state of being, my carriage, whenever I'm speaking in Spanish or speaking about going to Spanish-speaking countries. Like when I came back from Costa Rica for two weeks, she was like, you're so alive. You're so vibrant. This is really cool. You need to go, you know, you need to go live in a Spanish speaking country. Yeah, like move toward that. Yeah. Move toward the thing that makes you this way. And and so she's regularly wants to get me going in that, in that direction, which, so maybe that would be hers, would be like, wow. go towards what lights you up if we had one. Yeah. I don't know. I don't go know. Towards the light, Ted. Go towards the light. <laughs> Hold on a minute. Wait. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's the first part of our conversation with Matt Abrahams and Adam Tobin. Yeah, and we hope you will you will uh, move on along to part two and finish this conversation. But I I just love it, it, you know what I love about this cover this this part of the conversation is just the storytelling that that er arose inside it, mm -hmm. and specifically how your your ex early experience with pu public speaking mirrored Matt's right. and Adam's mirrored mine. Like we both had the same relationship to public speaking, and so did you. That was fascinating that way. Yeah. And I like I like hearing the the different influences on our lives, you know, whether it's the public speaking teachers or the experiences we've had or wisdom we've gotten from our parents and how that shows yeah. up in what we're doing in teaching. So that's kind of fun. But, yeah, love it. Um, but yeah. And there's, good, and there's good stuff to come. Good stuff so. to come. So stick around and, you know, listen to the next episode as well. We'll uh, give some information about how to get in touch with Matt and Adam after that second episode. Um, well, I assume that they'll maybe there'll be links on both on both. Yeah, we'll put links in the episode on both, but uh, in terms of yeah. saying it out loud right now. Yeah, we'll talk more about it later. Yeah, so come back. But uh, thanks for joining us and uh, we'll hear you. No, you'll hear us. We'll see you anyway. Yeah, <laughs> off, off, next time. Off you go. Thanks, you people. <laughs> Bye.